Welcome to Hearthside Salons, talks and conversations to feed your creative fire. I'm Heidi Hornbacher of Pagecraft Writing. Each week we bring you a guest worth listening to. We're thinking a lot about resilience these days during lockdown. Looking at a world with a lot of uncertainty, trying to understand a situation that is more complicated than a soundbite. That's why the perfect writer to talk to right now is Molly Sweeney. As a researcher, author, and political scientist, her work took her to Iraq and Syria. Definitely not a place to be boiled down to a soundbite. She interviewed a lot of people from all sides of the situation there, and what she came away with was awe for their resilience in the face of often unspeakable terror. What follows is a deep dive into the various crises in the Middle East and into the lives of the people living it. I met Molly right before lockdown. We actually both showed up to a book signing for Naomi McDougall Jones and her fantastic book called The Wrong Kind of Women. That's all about the Hollywood power structure and that. So we were the only two people that showed up. Because it was, again, like the day or two before lockdown. So it was kind of nuts. I so it was, it was the last stop on her book tour, actually. She canceled yeah. the last one because, yeah. because nobody was willing to go outside of their house. Yeah, well, rightly so. So it was Naomi, Molly, and I. And we sat there and chatted. And the more Molly started telling me her story, or not me, telling Naomi and I, her story about the research that she's done and the people that she's met working, you know, as a contractor in Syria and Iraq, I was riveted. And I was like, you know, and she started saying, well, I'm writing a book about this. And I was like, okay, great. We need this. The stories are so incredible. So um, I think it's really important because it's a part of the world that um, as Americans, we don't have a lot of exposure to except in very limited ways. So I think there's a lot of preconceptions of how, what it is, what it's like, why it's like the way it is and all that. So um, Molly has a very u- unique perspective, having been there and worked with the people and gotten to know them. And I'm very excited for her to share with us. Um, so in prep for her new book, You Must Understand, here's Molly. Thanks, Heidi. And thanks so much for putting these on. Uh, I don't know if anybody's gotten the chance to see any of the other ones or listen to the to the podcast of the other ones that Heidi's done, but they've been, they've been inspiring and kind of far ranging. And in this time, of everybody just kind of up in, in upheaval, it's, it's a great resource to think outside your own box, which has been a lot of fun for me to participate in. And thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Yeah, no, this is great. Uh, as you said, lots of people don't understand kind of the Islamic state and the, the challenges around the Islamic state and where they came from and where they're going. Uh, and so I'm hoping to be able with my book to kind of bring some light, shed some light on that, but mainly to be able to tell the stories of the people of Iraq and Syria who really took the brunt of ISIS, who lived under the kind of tyrannical rule, not only as people who were sub- subjected to it, but also as people who joined ISIS uh, and the complicated reasons that they did that. Uh, and all the way through my research, the same thing kept striking me, that it was, this is complicated. This is complicated. It's not black and white. There's no good guys and bad guys. Uh, even when you're talking about ISIS, it's all shades of gray. I suppose the, the ones who physically cut off other people's heads, we can fairly qualify as bad guys. 
but not necessarily everybody who followed the doctrine. The doctrine in many ways was was alluring for a long time. So so I went back to, uh, as you said, I, I've worked with the with various militaries. Um, and when I finished with that, I realized that Americans in general and kind of Westerners in general didn't really understand what was going on. And so I decided to write the book. Uh, I've been back to Iraq and Syria twice now to interview people, just kind of on the ground, average civilians, which has been the experience of a lifetime. And I'm just so honored that they've been willing to share their stories with me. So I'm here to share their stories with you. Uh, it's it's a bizarre time to be trying to think about the broader world, right? It's strange times we're living in. And it feels like the end of the world for all of us. Like for all of us who've lived and grown up in these very comfortable societies, going to the grocery store and not having things on the shelves is terrifying. And I get, I get that sense of doom and gloom. But the people of Iraq have lived through lots of end of the worlds. They had the first Gulf War where they invaded Kuwait and then we invaded, we the Americans, uh, invaded them. Uh, they had the Iran-Iraq War. They lived under Saddam Hussein, which was great for some people and not so great for lots of others. And then they had the 2003 invasion by American forces, which really threw the country into significant upheaval. But through all of this, the world never ended. They kept getting through the chaos and getting through the, the uh, terrible events of the day. And the sun kept coming up the next day and they kept rebuilding. And that's just a remarkable story. And I think it's something that we can learn from in this day and age. My first encounter with Iraqi resiliency um, and it's when I first really started to care about this on a deep and personal level, uh, was the 30th of May in 2017. And I was working in Iraq at the time, I was in Baghdad, and it was close to midnight, and I was with some friends watching a movie, and all of a sudden the building shook. And at first we thought it was thunder, but my friend and I ran out uh, to go see if we could figure out, like, was it raining? Was there a big plume of smoke? Uh, and we couldn't see either because it was the middle of the night and it was dark. But it definitely wasn't raining. So I ran to my weapon of choice, essentially, which is Twitter. And I sat behind Twitter all night long and watched the floods of information come in about what had happened. And what had happened was that ISIS had perpetrated a VBIT attack, which is vehicle-borne improvised explosive device. It's a car bomb. Usually when utilized by ISIS, it's a suicide car bomb. Somebody drives a car to someplace and blows themselves up and lots of other people. They always use them to target large groups of people because they want the biggest bang for their buck. And it may be confusing to lots of people why midnight uh, in the middle of May would be a great time for a VBIT. But it was the middle of Ramadan and people were just breaking their fasts, which meant 
a lot of families were out getting ice cream and celebrating the most holy month. And lots of kids died. And I sat there and I watched Twitter and I watched these images flowing in and I watched the security cam footage of things blowing up. But the most impactful images were the melted ice cream mixed with blood. And I thought I would never be the same. And realistically, I probably have never been the same. But I didn't understand how life could go on. I didn't understand how the sun would, in fact, come up the next day. But it did. And for the Iraqi people who are so just strong and so resilient, not only did it come up the next day, but five days later, that ice cream shop opened again to the public. And five days later, it was once again flooded with people because they would not stay home. They would not let ISIS win and terrorize them into being afraid of one another. So this calls into question, the biggest question I think that comes out of this is why would ISIS want to kill kids? Like, I can't imagine essentially a more heinous crime than targeting children. They're defenseless. They've never done anything to you. Why on earth, what, what within ISIS caused them to target an ice cream shop specifically full of families? And to get that, you have to understand where ISIS came from and you have to understand their key motivations. So ISIS grew largely out of the 2003 invasion of Iraq, the American invasion of Iraq. Because you see, when we invaded, we did so to oust Saddam Hussein. Saddam Hussein was a bad guy. He committed genocide against at least the Yazidis and more if you, depending on how you qualify your genocides. And largely just, just a terrible, terrible human being and leader. But, so we went in to get him out and to free these people from the slavery of Saddam Hussein's uh, organization. Now, Saddam Hussein was a Sunni, and this is where we screwed up. We thought that he, being a Sunni, was persecuting everybody who wasn't a Sunni. Largely the Shia, but also the Christians and the Kurds, which is an ethnic group, not a religious group, but still singular. They don't necessarily fall into the Sunni uh, group. And so we thought that it was religiously based persecution. It really wasn't. Saddam Hussein was a Ba'athist and he was persecuting non-Ba'athists. And while it's true that most of the Ba'athists were in fact Sunni, that wasn't necessarily a correlation that had to happen. I can be an Episcopalian and I can be an American at the same time, but they don't have that much to do with each other. And I can persecute people as an Episcopalian or I could persecute people as an American but those are, those are distinct. And so we messed up and we thought that he was persecuting the Shias. And our solution to that was to give the Shias the disproportionate power that the Sunnis had had. And essentially to like say, sorry, here you go. I know you've been persecuted. Now you get to be in charge. Which was a pretty terrible solution just at face value, but even more terrible considering 
the Shias and the Sunnis didn't have a problem largely with each other. It was it was a political identification issue, not a religious one. But we put the Shias in power and it had these massive domino effects, massive ripple effects all the way through society. And in essence, we accidentally formed new identities and new social cleavages. So the ultimate goal of the, the uh, Islamic State of ISIS is to as- establish an Islamic State. It doesn't mean anything to a lot of people. So let me break down. They want a country. They want territory like every other country. They want to control what happens inside their territory. And what they want to govern that territory is Islamic law from the 7th century. They want Sharia law to be able to, uh, to enact all of their laws. Here's the trick. They don't really want an Islamic state. They want a Sunni state. Because unlike to other terrorist organizations, their issue isn't with the Americans. Their issue isn't with the rest of the world per se. Their, issue, their primary issue is with the Shia. Because they think they're denigrating the religion. And so they need to either convert or kill the Shia to, to cleanse the Islamic religion. And that's how they want to build their state. But the way they did it is that they used the new sectarian divisions that we, the Americans, had essentially created when we tried to go fix what we broke when we took Saddam Hussein out of power. And they used the legacy of the Iran-Iraq war to tear people apart to tear the fabric of society apart and pit people against each other and then rise themselves up as the defenders of the Sunnis to restore the rights of the Sunnis. But they tore everyone apart by reframing old conflicts. So I had the opportunity, um, which was amazing and humbling, to meet with a man who fought in the Iran-Iraq war on the side of Iraq. Um, I sat in his house in Baghdad. He had fought as a soldier against Iran, and his name's Jamal. And Jamal, in his patriotic duty as an Iraqi in this fight, was hit with a rocket. Now, my non-military friends won't really understand how bizarre that is. You don't get hit with a rocket. You're, the building you're in gets hit with a rocket and explodes. That's how you die of a rocket. You don't physically get hit with it, but he did. He got hit in the shoulder with it. It didn't explode. It just lodged, lodged itself in his shoulder. Now, by 1986, when he got hit with this, Iraq was hemorrhaging money and they were hemorrhaging people. And so they didn't really have a lot of resources to give him. So they simply took the rocket out of his shoulder and let him go home. Didn't get a pension, didn't get anything. So we went home to Al-Qaim. Al-Qaim is a city on the far western side of Iraq, uh, on the border with Syria. But at this point, he was disabled, basically, and couldn't work. But he rebuilt his life. Slowly but steadily, he rebuilt his life. He has a wife named Amil. He has two sons. They're incredible. And he was able to put everything back together, even though he didn't have use of half of his body. Under Saddam Hussein, they were pretty good. 
Al-Qaim is a largely Sunni area. It was a largely Ba'ath area. And so they weren't persecuted, but they suffered heavily under the American occupation. They were harassed. They suffered economically. Everything got really complicated for them because their country wasn't their own, but they rebuilt and they persevered. And then not long after the Americans left, ISIS came in and took over. Now, ISIS took over in Al-Qaim pretty easily because it's, because it's such a Sunni area. And in the beginning, ISIS was great. And that's a theme all the way through the book and all the way through, through the conversations I've had, that in the beginning, when ISIS gets there, they're your best friend. They, want, they need your support. They want to be able to provide things for you. And they did. And then they started beating people. And then they started kidnapping people. And then they started torturing people and cutting off their heads. And suddenly living under ISIS was far worse than anything he'd ever done before. And this is a guy who got hit with a rocket. So his wife was cleaning out the garage one day without an abaya on. An abaya is a full, the full dress that is required by ISIS. The only thing allowed to show is your eyes. Um, and she didn't have an abaya on. And to punish her, they took her son and threw him in prison and tortured him. Eventually, it got so bad that they simply couldn't stay any longer. There were eight people in the family. Now, they didn't have any money because not only had ISIS tortured them physically, but ISIS had tanked the economy. They didn't, they didn't, there were no jobs. There was no way to feed anybody. There was no way to do anything. And their family members from across Iraq had had to be transferring the money uh, just so they could eat. The only way to get out was to pay a smuggler. And it cost $400 per person. And there were eight of them. So think about that kind of money in an economy where there is not enough for food but they couldn't leave anybody behind because if they did, those people would have been killed out of retribution. So in the middle of the night, the smuggler came in his car and all eight of them packed in and drove and drove through the night and they had to put blankets on the children to try and keep them quiet because if ISIS would have caught them, they would have been killed. At best, they would have been killed. But they got to Baghdad and the next day, he calls his neighbor to tell him that they've arrived safely. And his neighbor says, well, it's, a, it's great you left when you did. Because the day after you left, your house was destroyed by an airstrike. So there was nothing left for them. He was starting over yet again. But they built a life in Baghdad. And I sat there in their house. And both sons have jobs now. And they're doing okay. And these children are running around all around me laughing and playing. And I asked him, will you ever go back? Will you ever go back to Al-Qaim? Will you ever go back to your, to your roots? And he said, there's nothing there for me here. There, there's nothing there for me now. My life is here now. And he did. He built a whole new life all over again. And he'll continue to. There will be another crisis for this man and he will persevere yet again. And that is remarkable. And that is something that we as Westerners, 
really don't understand. Now, unfortunately for us, ISIS is kind of equally resilient. They, they expanded through Iraq and the Iraqi army invited the Americans back in to help, to help curb the spread because ISIS was going to overtake Baghdad. But ISIS also expanded into Syria. They don't care about boundaries. They don't care about borders. And so they just crossed right over and they were able to take advantage of yet more sectarian division. They were able to take advantage of the, uh, the Syrian civil war to hope no one noticed as they went in and took over large swaths of Eastern Syria. And they were successful. At their peak, ISIS controlled the area size of the United Kingdom. They controlled over 10 million people. That's for, for a group that Obama once called the JV team. Man, were they successful. Man, were they resilient. Like their leaders kept getting taken out and they kept getting stronger leaders, more brutal leaders. But in Syria, they were able to exploit the power vacuum even more than they were able to uh, exploit kind of division between people. That's how resilient they are. They were able to evolve. They were able to insert themselves into societies however they needed to. They didn't much care. And why would people join ISIS? There's a lot of reasons. Um, Some of them make even more sense than others. The first is economic. ISIS paid its soldiers really well. They provided for their families. There was a certain amount of honor in being able to be a founding father of the Islamic State. Think about the way we Americans talk about our founding fathers with such reverence. Given the right propaganda, given the right kind of rationale, that's that's a persuasive argument. They were also given the people themselves were given power. People who felt disenfranchised could once again feel proud. They could once again stand up and say, I am a leader in society and I look at my weapon that has been bequeathed to me. Very few people, as far as all of my research has gone, both field research and academic research, very few people joined because of ideology. Very few people really believed in in the strictest version of Sharia law and thought that that's, that's the best way to run a society. They didn't care. They were, they were choosing the most efficient means to an end. They needed freedom. They needed power. They needed money. They needed liberation. And so they took the most expedient route to get there. And that happened to be ISIS for a while. Now, unfortunately, all of the male fighters that joined brought their wives and children with them. <laughs> and we can talk about them as if the women had no choice. Having spoken with the women, lots of them did. Lots of them were drivers and in the kind of move towards the Islamic State. But since they were women, they couldn't be fighters which means that once ISIS was defeated in terms of a territorial entity, they didn't go to prison the way that the ISIS fighters did. They went mainly, most of them, went to a place called Al-Hol. Now Al-Hol is a camp 
in Syria that's not far from the Iraqi border. Um, and it is the most depressing place I have ever been. Uh, I had the opportunity to, opportunity to go last September. And in El hole, it's lines of tents as far as the eye can see. And it's sometimes easy to forget for me looking back at my pictures that in these lines of tents are people, our whole families. In fact, there are 70,000 people who live in our whole camp. That's like a small town, 70,000 people. Now, it's called El Hole Camp, but the lines between refugee camp and prison are a little bit blurry. There are different sectors of El Hole, and in some of the sectors, it's legitimately refugees. It's people who fled ISIS or fled the Syrian regime, or fled the Iraqi civil war back, back in the early 2000s, or fled whatever, there are real refugees. But there are also quasi-prisoners, the wives and children of the Islamic State fighters, many of whom are still in ISIS, who still have allegiance toward ISIS. And that's who I wanted to talk to because those are the interesting people. So I went and I held their babies and I listened to their stories and I went into their tents and I was inundated with tragic and heartwarming and depressing stories, all of which had resilience. But Eventually I became kind of overwhelmed because you try sitting in a tent made for eight with 30 women all screaming at you in Arabic. I don't personally speak Arabic. It was all through a translator and it was overwhelming to say the least. So eventually we took our, took our leave and tried to put distance because believe it or not, I don't blend in. So we were walking and I saw a woman through a window of the only standing structure in the camp that I had seen um, in the residential portion. There's, there's standing structures in the, the commerce version or portion, but in the residential, it's all tents. But here's a cinder block sort of structure with a tinted roof. And I saw it through the window. And she was shabbier than most of the other women I had seen, but she was kind. I could just feel it. And so I asked her to talk to me. And she did. And she told me about her life. And she told me about her family. And I, I went into the structure slightly tentatively, because in the event that there was an explosion, in a tent, the blast waves go out. In a structure, the blast waves just hit you a couple times before, before the blocks explode. But I went in anyway. And she pulled out for a mat for me to sit. And it turns out that this was the community kitchen. What made this a kitchen? I have no idea. 
There were no pots and pans. There were no cooking utensils of any type. There was no kind of heat for fire. I have no idea. But she graciously offers me this mat to sit on and apologizes for not having anything to feed me and starts telling me about her life. And her husband was an ISIS fighter. It's no secret. And he's dead now. Which she didn't seem that sad about. And he died in Baghuz. Baghuz was the last stronghold of ISIS. Um, it's, where the, it's where they eventually were defeated. Um, and it's where all of the kind of hardcore zealots remained. Unfortunately, their families remained with them because ISIS wouldn't let them leave the city. They used them as human shields. So she was there. And in Maguz, her, her husband was killed by an airstrike. But she was able to escape with three of her children. The baby she was currently nursing as she held, uh, that she held as she was talking to me. A young boy who was probably three years old who started going through my backpack looking for snacks immediately before she looked mortified and chewed him away. Um, and she told me about her other son named Muhammad. And Muhammad had also been hit with, in an airstrike. And he'd been a perfectly fine, perfectly normal little boy until he was hit with shrapnel. And now he can't walk and he can't do anything. And she told me, that he's off back in the tent, laying on the mat like he always does. And I asked if I could go see him, but unfortunately at this moment, all of the women find me. Again, hard for me to blend it. And they come into the room and they start sharing their stories and telling me all sorts of things. And it gets louder and it gets louder and it gets louder. And then boom, all of a sudden a rock hits the metal door and I just about hit the floor, but I managed to refrain, to restrain myself. But the women are telling me their stories. And these aren't the women that I've already talked to. These are different women. These are women who are part of what's called the Hizb, the, the police. Because even here in the camp, there are still Islamic State women who wander around policing other women. I've been told about them before I even got there. My fixer at the time showed me pictures on our way into the camp of a 23-year-old woman who had been beaten to death by the Hez for not willing, being willing to wear a veil. She showed me pictures of her beaten and bruised body and told me that she was pregnant. So I knew not to screw with these women. <laughs> these women were not to be trifled with and I had no interest in crossing any of them. And so as they told me their stories and as they told me about their love for the Islamic State, I smiled and kept looking at Muhammad's mom. And then all of a sudden the door opens again and in rolls a little boy in a rickety old wheelchair that was way too big for him. And you've got this curly hair. And I know immediately that it's Muhammad. And he comes and he rolls over and his mom helps him get on the mat and he sits right next to me. And the women are still shouting at me and the children immediately take his, 
take his wheelchair off and start playing with it. And I'm losing my mind because I don't want them to break this, the only way this kid has of getting around. And he sits there in his diapers because he can't, he has no motor control of the lower part of his body. And his mom pulls up the back of his shirt and shows me his scars. And then encourages me to touch them. And I feel his scars and I run my fingers over them, the rippled flesh. And I see the curvature of his spine from where the shrapnel hit him. And he's just soft. Everything about him is soft. I pull his shirt back down and I smile at him because it feels so invasive of me to have seen, seen this much of him, seen this much of his life. And he just smiles back and he's quiet and he's shy. And she tells me that he doesn't go to school like the rest of the kids because he can't. He just lays on his mat all day long. And sometimes other kids come to play with him and sometimes they don't. And meanwhile, the other women in the room are still shouting about me, shouting to me, shouting about Isis, shouting about I don't even know what they won't stop shouting. And Muhammad is completely unfazed because I guess if you get hit in an airstrike, the obnoxious women that live down the street just don't matter that much anymore. And the kids are in his wheelchair and I'm getting overwhelmed. So I stopped to take a picture and I'm holding this, this woman's baby and the baby is warm and it's too warm. And it, She's talking to me about how America is the devil incarnate as I'm holding her child and she's smiling at me. And the world was complicated. But we stopped to take a picture of me holding the baby. And there's a little boy standing next to me. And the crazy woman who won't stop shouting tells the little boy something in Arabic. So I look over and I see him. And there he is putting up the sign of ISIS in the picture next to me. I actually have the picture. I can show it to you. This is the family from al Qaim. Mm. Here is the, the, ba <laughs> the baby and the little kid who's giving me the sign of ISIS. This is not Muhammad's brother. Um, this, is, this is just another little kid. Here are Muhammad's scars. And here's the picture of all of the women. So as with everyone I interview, I asked about their hopes for the future. And they didn't know what to say. And so I got more specific. I said, if you could be one thing in the future, what would it be? And they went around the room. Well, I would be the wife of an ISIS fighter. Fair enough. The crazy lady was like, I want to be an ISIS fighter. Okay, crazy lady. I want to be a teacher. Okay. And on they went around the room until we got to Muhammad's mom. And she quietly says, quietly, but assertively says, I will go anywhere. I will go anywhere as long as I can promise a better life for my children, I will even go to America. Now you have to remember 
the risk she took in saying this to me. This was a room full of women who could have been part of the mob who beat the other woman to death. But she didn't care because in the, if there was the smallest chance in the world that I could help her get there, she wasn't going to miss it. And this woman was committed to speaking her own truth about the world, to speaking her love for her children. And that's remarkable. And I was so humble. And to, to mask my tears, I turned to Muhammad. And I said, and what about you, Muhammad? What about, what would you like to do? And he giggles and he's shy and he looks around. And the crazy lady over here keeps telling him to say, be an ISIS fighter, be an ISIS fighter. And he ignores her because he doesn't care. He got hit with shrapnel. You can't scare me anymore. But he won't say it out loud because he's embarrassed and because the crazy lady is still shouting. So he gestures and I lean in. My translator leans in because otherwise I'm not going to know what he's saying. And he says, I want to be a doctor. This little boy in the middle of a refugee camp that he's not allowed to leave in the middle of Syria just wants to be a doctor. There he is. Just wants to be a doctor. And all I could think was, if he can maintain faith in the future in such dire conditions, who am I not to? We can learn from the people who lived under ISIS. We can learn from their experiences and we can learn from the stories that they've been willing to share. Whether it's Jamal who got shot by a rocket and then went home and then lived under the American occupation and then had to flee ISIS with his family at risk of being killed and then had his house burned down and still built a new life. Whether it was Muhammad and his mom who were able to plan for the future, even in, in the chaos of our whole camp, even in the fear that they lived in every day, even in the dirt and the grime and the lack of any assurances about the future, or even if it was an ice cream shop that opened five days after they were bombed, everybody got back up. Everybody said, let's try again tomorrow. And I, I can't think of a more apt moral of their story. Then they kept getting back up. And all they want is for people to understand their story and understand how complicated it is and understand that they will get back up and they will tell their story again tomorrow. So my first stop when I got back to Baghdad in 2019 was to go to the ice cream shop. And my dear friend who became my family, Ahmed, who started as my fixer, brought me to the ice cream shop in the middle of the night so I could have one last scoop and appreciate just how strong these people really were. Can you 
talk talk about I would love to know about that because we talked a little bit about this but where you uh where where was your inspiration for the title of the book so throughout all of my interviews um again I went on two different trips and so it probably wasn't kind of isolating factors it was just the way that they were communicating to me all these people bore their souls to me that this complete stranger. I mean, oftentimes we would stop people on the streets and they would tell me about the worst days of their life, but they would also tell me about just how complicated they were. And it wasn't, a, it wasn't them asking me not to judge them. It was asking me to pay attention. And almost every single person said at some point in the interview, you must understand. And then they would go on to the complex pieces. And so I thought there was no more apt of a title than you must understand, because I don't think we as Americans, as North Americans, as Westerners, truly understand. And I think it's not because people don't want to. It's that they just haven't been presented with the information to be able to do that, to be able to truly understand with all of the context and all of the nuance. Yeah, there's so many. That's what really struck me, you know, because... I remember the Gulf War and I remember the ouster of Saddam and all that stuff. And so it's like, I thought I knew what the facts were until we started talking. And as you say, it's like, it's so much more complicated than we've been told. You know, we've been given this little piece of the story just because it's easier in in a news soundbite, you know, when it's, when you have 60 seconds to explain yeah. it on news, it's, you don't, you don't get a whole lot of nuance to it. Well, yeah. And we're not great at, I was gonna say, we're not great at nuance. We're not great at, you know, that kind we're of. Not. And we're not great at seeing outside of ourselves. I mean, turn on, turn on any major news channel, Fox or MSNBC or CNN or anything, even our nightly news, which generally is of a higher caliber. And almost all of the stories are domestic. Yes. We forget to care about the rest of the world. And I think that's too bad because I think these people and their stories are worthy of our attention and are worthy of our empathy because they're not that different than us. And I think if, if coronavirus has shown us anything, it's that no one is, no one is immune from chaos. No one is immune from the next big problem. Uh, So maybe we can learn from the people who have already lived through some. Yeah. I think we definitely can learn from their resilience and I, I, it's true. I, I will flip over to BBC International or um, or Al Jazeera sometimes, and it's just like, oh, these are stories that I don't hear at all on my outlets here. So it's really a fascinating, you know, look into other parts of the world that we don't get enough of, as you say. So, um, and unfortunately, just one kind of extra point on that. I think through our media, not just through news media, but through entertainment, Middle Easterners have often become the scapegoat. Mm -hmm. It is easy to cast them as the bad guy. Yes. And so it is easy to kind of write them off as not worthy of, of further thought, right? Of not seeing them as complete individuals and complete people in a way that we're more than happy to see other cultures as, as similar to our own. Yeah. Well, cause that requires nuance and, you know, think learning the details and, and I think you're right. We do like to have scapegoats. It makes things tidy and easy. And, and that is, you know, 
through all of this, I think what it's about learning to see people as people and how many different categories of people that we now see as people and worthy of storytelling. And this is, I think, a really good way of broadening that net and saying, also these people that you've been taught not very much about, also worthy stories. Let's hear them. Let's yeah, get not to very know much them. about. And, and what you have been taught is they're terrorists. Right. Right. Yeah. Or and it's, they supported Saddam Hussein and that makes them bad or they supported whatever. Yeah. And makes them, it's shades of gray. Yeah. When I was starting, first starting writing years and years ago, that was just, you would see it in writing classes all the time of, you know, default, the default was, oh, the bad guy is, you know, the bad guy Here. is a Middle Easterner. Yeah. And it was Every just time. like, and it wasn't even questioned. It was just like, if you're writing a political thriller or whatever, or an action thing, the bad guy's an, is an Arab. And it was just like, realizing that we'd been just so set to that was kind of horrifying when, when it's like, when I finally was able to go, Oh my God, what have we been doing? You know? So I did a fascinating um, radio interview when I was in Baghdad, uh, when I was still uh, promoting the book. Um, I guess I'm still not promoting a book. I'm currently seeking an agent for the book, which is interesting in the time of Corona, but I was, I was in the middle of the book and I was invited to come on the radio station. Uh, And they asked me kind of point blank, if, if they, th- if I thought that the portrayal of of Arabs and Middle Easterners in the media contributed to Americans not caring, and the fact that they are so aware of it uh, is a little embarrassing that we're not. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, well, before I open this up to just to other questions, I see there's there's already one from Randall. Thank you. We'll get to you in just a second. I just wanted to ask you, first of all, when I met you. Uh, my first impression was, oh my God, this woman is so brave. Like I could never have done what you did. Uh, you know, the, the, t- the thought of traveling over there terrifies me just as, you know, because it's destabilized no, it, and, it and I, I stand out too, you know, I'm six feet tall. Besides it's like, I'm going to, you know, it's, yeah. I'm going to stand out in a, in a place where I don't belong. And um, so what made you first, what attracted you to studying the Middle East and the culture? So I think it's been a long time coming. Um, lots of things did. Uh, probably the first was I moved from from rural Idaho to the San Francisco Bay Area um, two weeks before 9-11. And I went from having like exclusively white friends to exclusively brown friends, varying shades of brown. And all my new friends were Indian or Pakistani or Iraqi or uh Latino or whatever, but I saw as all of my Middle Eastern friends suddenly, even kind of in the insulated world of the San Francisco Bay Area, become second class citizens. And that made me so mad. I mean, I was I was 12 years old and I was pissed off about it. Uh, and so I think that was kind of the first, the first kind of pivotal point. And then I studied it under, uh, I studied Middle Eastern studies under a, a brilliant professor in, in college and in university at UC Davis and went on and studied under brilliant professors at the London School of Economics for my, for my master's. Uh, and I've traveled extensively in the Middle East kind of in between that. And I truly believe that you find places around the world that even if you don't look like you fit in, your soul just kind of belongs there. Mm-hmm. And, and that's the Middle East for me. Um, yeah. There is this incredible sense of hospitality. There's this incredible sense of honor and 
and generosity that you don't find anywhere else in the world. And I've been all over the world. Uh, and I, I love it. I love the faith. I love, I love the faith in community. Uh, and so it just kind of spiraled. And so I started, I studied it and then I started working in the Middle East. Um, and I started doing con some consulting and working with having different militaries understand kind of culturally nuanced pieces and it went from there. It's amazing. What, how, how did you think it changed you? Especially this last visit. This last visit was hard. Um, so the first time I went back, I went, <laughs> I went exclusively to Iraq. Um, so I started up in Northern Iraq and I went to Mosul, which was where they declared the caliphate. Um, and then I went down to Baghdad, which I love. So I'd worked in Baghdad before, but I hadn't seen Baghdad. I hadn't been part of Baghdad. Mm. Um, and I made these incredible friends and, uh, it was, it was life changing, but in a really positive way. Uh, the second time I went back, I went to Syria, which was a lot harder. It mm. was for a lot of reasons. One, um, as I've said, my fixer down in Baghdad, I had a fixer in Northern Iraq and a fixer in Southern Iraq, both of whom were phenomenal. And I hit the jackpot and I, I can't have asked for better friends. I can't have asked for better protectors. My, my fixer in Syria was less reliable. Mm. And so not only was I in a far more volatile situation, I was in a far more volatile situation with somebody I didn't trust. Uh, and that was a little, a little terrifying. Um, and then the situation in Syria is still pretty dire in a way it's, it's different in, in Iraq. Um, the Syrian civil war is still raging. Uh, the Assad regime comes back and sort of wins every once in a while, but then the rebels push back. Uh, but lots of atrocities happened in Syria that didn't necessarily happen in Iraq. Uh, and I was standing in the square that they put the beheaded heads on. And um, I was in the camps with, with women and children who had no hope for their future. And I saw, or I went to a part of one of the camps where there were orphans who would never be taken by anybody. Um, and the pain of it combined with the, the instability and the unsafety not a word sure, um sure. really really messed with me it was really hard um and then I was supposed to go down to Baghdad afterwards to kind of regroup and be with my friends and there were massive protests going on in Baghdad so I didn't get to do that <laughs> and then I went to Berlin where I've got family early and I ended up getting incredibly ill and so it was just kind of it it stacked but by far the worst part was two days after I left um, northern Syria, the Turks rolled over the border, and I didn't know if essentially most of the people I just talked to had been killed. Uh, and there was there was in incredible guilt surrounding that. Um, th there's still incredible guilt surrounding that. I have no idea where Muhammad is. He was in El Hol, which is far farther south that the Turks didn't touch, but the SDF who administers the camp had to go defend northern Syria and so lots of things happen I don't know um and so 
I, I will never be the same as a human being and I will never be the same as a, as a researcher or a writer um, because I felt pain in a, in a brand new way, um, which I think is valuable in a, in a sick and twisted kind of way, but, but it, it comes with a cost. It certainly comes with a cost. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I want to say I'm I'm glad you went through that because but that sounds really bizarre to say but like I'm yeah. you know it's like I'm glad you've got something out of it because that's to bear that kind of pain and um you know uh, sort of for them like you know you're, you're telling Muhammad's story the thing and, was that I'd I'd promised these people to bring their stories home with me yeah. and for months I couldn't I couldn't work on the book because it I couldn't touch those those feelings without. Yeah without just kind of dissolving in tears. Yeah. But now I, I have, I've gone through the interviews. It's all Good. starting to get packaged together and hopefully, hopefully it will get published soon. Yeah. I can't imagine it would not. Um, well, so yeah. So Randall asks, Molly, you describe women whose husbands were killed and yet remain loyal to ISIS. What is their motivation? It's a great question. Their motivation was ISIS is great at propaganda. ISIS is amazing at messaging. In fact, one of the first things that the U.S. targeted was the ISIS media cells because they were so effective at at calling people to arms, essentially. Um, The other thing that they were great at doing was twisting people's perspective and twisting people's priorities. So people started to understand their commitment to the state, the Islamic state, and all of the ideals that came with that as their highest calling. Um, and so when they, when they were able to do that, people stopped really caring about their families in many ways. I mean, in, in Al Hole, there was the woman who got beaten to death, but there was also a grandmother who, who killed her, I think, six-year-old granddaughter she might have been seven six or seven year old granddaughter for refusing to wear the veil so none of the priorities matched up the people um that are willing to perpetrate those kind of things are either mentally ill or brainwashed uh not everybody who adhered to the islamic state was lots of them were totally normal people but by the time the ISIS fighters were killed. So much trauma had happened and so many children of their children had died and so many of their family had died. It was just kind of another drop in the bucket for them, which sounds crass, but that's the way it was. Yeah. It sounds like the reverberations of trauma are going to be felt for for at least another generation. Certainly. I mean, and these women, there's no plan for disbanding the refugee camps, Mm. the refugee camp slash prison. Um, So the women have already been there for years. There's no reason to believe that they won't be there for more years. Um, So. Well, and I'm sure for some of them, it's just a question of survival. It's like, if that's your only means of food or shelter, you, you go along with it. You believe in it. And, and that's certainly the case. And uh, for lots of the people in that camp that weren't necessarily adherents of ISIS, they can't go home. Um, they can't go home either because their homes don't exist anymore or because of the kind of 
complicated proxy wars that have happened through all of this. Their homes are now controlled by people where they're not welcome anymore. So if if they were against the Assad regime, they can't go back to their homes if the Assad regime controls there. Right. If they are Sunnis from Iraq and now what's called the, the PMF controls their cities, the PMF is a Shia groups that are backed by Iran, they can't go home. They're not safe there. Uh, so they're, they're in this kind of constant loop of, well, we can't leave, but we don't really want to stay and there's nothing for us anyway. Uh, and, and yet they continue to have hope for the future, which is just kind of mind boggling to me. Yeah, it's, it is humbling actually to hear. Bill says, do you agree with Malcolm Nance that ISIS does not belong to the faith of Islam, but is a separate extremist group? I do, largely. So uh, ISIS has, I think, oh, now I'm going to mess it up. They've got some ridiculous amount of adherence worldwide. And I've done the math once. And the town I grew up in, in Idaho, um, if you took a third of the population of that town compared to the entire United States, that's how big ISIS is, um, or Islamic groups are. Like you can't, uh, hardcore Islamic groups are, you can't judge the entire United States by a third of my rural Idaho hometown. That's insane. Um, and so, yes, I do, I do adhere to the Nance uh, philosophy that they have broken off essentially so much from the, the Islamic doctrine and from um, every kind of Islamic theorist since the seventh century uh, that, that they can no longer be considered a sect of Islam. Uh, if for no other reason, then they insist on killing Shias. And, and that's, that's genocide of self. And so, yes, I agree with that. What I most appreciate is you finding the inspiration within it to tell your story and to tell, to tell their stories, you know, so these aren't, these aren't going to be lost or in vain. Um, Sydney says, why do you think they do not have peace there yet? In the Middle East, you have several kind of ongoing uh, conflicts. You have the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, which happens all the way over in Israel and Palestine, um, which is a totally separate subject, which really has nothing to do with this. Um, you have the kind of overarching Saudi-Iran conflict, which does have something to do with this. And then the kind of microcosm that I've looked at is Syria, not very, this is really big microcosm, is Syria and Iraq. Um, so in Iraq, do I think there will be any kind of peace anytime soon? Iraq just, just elected a new prime minister or president, excuse me. Um, we'll see. I don't have a whole lot of faith. The problem with Iraq and Syria right now is twofold. One, there's been ongoing conflict and ongoing instability for so long that it's kind of part of the general, the general feeling now. That's it's part of their lives. And without that conflict, it gets a little confusing. Like, what do I do with all this peace? It's like it's going to be weird for me to go back to the grocery store. But the bigger issue is that there's not just one conflict at this side. This is where I get really excited because I'm a nerdy political scientist. It's not just one conflict. ISIS was a byproduct 
of a lot of different conflicts. So just within Syria, we'll talk about Syria for a second. Just within Syria, you have the Syrian civil war going on. You have ongoing skirmishes going on between Turkey and the Syrian Kurds, which are distinct from the Iraqi Kurds. Don't conflate the two. Um, You have the ongoing Turkish-Syrian conflict. You have the battle between the different rebel groups. And you have ISIS. Now, ISIS was being fought in Syria by something called the SDF, the Syrian Democratic Forces. It was the American proxy force. It was the Kurds who were willing to go fight the ground war against ISIS with the Americans and the coalition flying over with airstrikes. The problem is that all of these things are happening under the umbrella of a global proxy war. That is to say that the U.S. and Russia are actively participating in Syria against each other and sometimes with each other. And you've got Iran and Saudi who are also trying to exert influence. So this war isn't just their war. This war is being fought by global actors who are trying to influence the situation to our, our, because the Americans are a big part of this, to our own benefit. So you've got the Russians and the Iranians working with the Assad regime. For a while, the Americans were working against the Assad regime. You've got Turkey fighting the Assad regime and fighting the Kurds and theoretically fighting ISIS at the same time. So why is there not peace there? Because there can't be. It's it's too muddled up still. And there's too many people trying people, countries trying to gain a foothold within Syria to ever kind of come to any resolution. So one of the key takeaways is that the U.S. created the conditions for ISIS in Iraq. The U.S. and Saudi and Russia and Iran are currently creating the conditions for an ISIS-like resurgence in Syria right now. Um, so I was going to say, so we've learned nothing. Um, no, and that's <laughs> the, sorry. So that's the thing. And the easiest way to say we've learned nothing is the Americans established this thing called Camp Buka when we first went in, in 2003. And we rounded a lot of people up, some of whom deserved it and some of whom didn't. And we threw them all together in this camp. It's way more complicated than this, but I'm gonna simplify it. We threw them all together in this camp. And there were thousands, tens of thousands of almost exclusively Iraqi Sunnis who were thrown together in the camp, most of whom were just ordinary guys. Some of whom were our hardcore Islamists. Some of whom were really good at making bombs some of whom were really good at running their crime syndicate. But we put them together and we pissed them off because we kept them there without like any end date. And they created a network. And that network became ISIS. Now, we created almost the exact same scenario in Syria with the prison camp that we threw all the ISIS members in. So to think that we're not going to have some byproduct, whether they're called ISIS or whether they're called whatever they're gonna name themselves next, it will come out of our own decisions yet again. Well, that's, um, Ahmed asks, do you think ISIS could be back again in Iraq? Yeah. Sounds like the short answer is yes. Ahmed is the one I talked about. He's my friend and family. So he's actually, it's, Four o'clock in the morning for him right now. Oh, thank you for being with us. So hi, Ahmed. Um, Yes, I have learned enough from you to know that ISIS will be back. 
uh, it will be back in some form or another. And even now, uh, you don't, I don't, you don't need me to just tell you this. Uh, ISIS is creating problems in central Iraq and creating problems um, to a lesser extent in, in the Kurdistan region. So will they be back? Yeah, they will. And it will happen as we are distracted with something else. So distracted. Um, and then Sid follows up with, are we helping or hurting more by being involved? And will they suffer more if we stop being involved? Yes. See they also, will suffer more see also what we did to the Kurds. So, yes. Um, so I told you the, the SDF was our ground force in Syria. And that is, that is the only reason that we were able to defeat ISIS in Syria. Um, now, the SDF did so on their own volition. They did it essentially because it was their country. They had their own goals, don't get me wrong. They want their own territory. They want to be an autonomous state. But they did it at the behest of the United States. They did it so that we didn't have to because the we, the Americans of the coalition, were invited into Iraq. We certainly weren't invited into Syria, which meant the most we could ever do was airstrikes unless we wanted to flat out invade. So we, we were more than happy to have this, the SDF, the Kurds, the Syrian Kurds, fight our battles for us. And then we left. And we left at a time when Turkey was flat out threatening the Kurds, and we left them to fend for themselves. And it said to all of our allies around the world, we are, we are not reliable allies to you anymore. And unfortunately, people died. I mean, are, we, are they better off with us there? Unfortunately, at the moment, yeah, they are. Um, if for no other reason than we act as human shields between other countries. Uh, nobody's willing to kill American forces, uh, except for occasionally the Iranians. Um, people are far more hesitant to kill American forces than they are to kill Syrian forces, to kill the Kurdish forces. Um, and the, what was the first half of the question? Sorry, Heidi. Uh, yeah, I think you answered it. You said, are we helping or hurting more by being involved? So it's, yeah. So we're helping. Um, the problem is, uh, when does it end? And there is no easy answer. There's no cookie. Yeah. Um, and Sid, Sid follows up with that. Are the, are the women raising their children to be warriors or to move beyond the perpetual war? And it sounds like, from what you were saying, a mix. It, it's a on... mix. And it depends on which women you're talking about. Yeah. Um, so certainly... Mm -hmm. I would say the women in, in Iraq aren't, um, they are, they're hoping that their sons, um, become something else, uh, become some leaders of society within Iraq, or to be perfectly honest, most of them hope their children leave, um, and find better lives elsewhere. The crazy Syrian women that I met with in the camp, um, The, the far extreme ones absolutely want their kids to be soldiers, absolutely would, would throw their kids to the wolves. Um, the more moderate ones, I think, just want to survive. It's, it's purely survival instinct now. So if ISIS comes back and suddenly 
their sons can provide for the family by being soldiers, by all means, be a soldier. Uh, it's very kind of economic at that point. Uh, but then you have women like Muhammad's mom who would give anything, anything in the world to give Muhammad a chance at life, yeah. uh, give him a chance at being a doctor. So it's a, it's a huge mix and, um, and not an easy one. Very complicated. Lots of the lots of the Syrian women who followed ISIS died, so they they don't get a vote anymore. Um, yeah, and lots of them hope for the continuance of the Islamic State, and we'll see if they get their wish. It's too bad we can't have Ahmed on. He'd be an awesome speaker. Is he able? I mean, if you Ahmed, if you want to, you can unmute yourself. It's up to you, Ahmed. Ahmed's the only reason I have any information at all. Hey, guys. Hi. Welcome. How are you? Good. Well, it's you? Long, so <laughs> that's why I didn't unmute myself. You know, I want to see like your point of view of what's happening now. Because last week we have, like I think, six or seven suicide attacks. Uh, In right? Ambar, Diala, yeah. So, so do you think it... Because of the uh, pandemic or the coalition? I think it's probably a combination. Um, I think everybody in the world is distracted by the pandemic right now. And that's uh, that's a great time to to slip in and hope nobody notices. I mean, you saw the, the Taliban attack today in Afghanistan that killed uh, 16 people in a maternity ward in Kabul. Yeah and uh, hit a funeral procession elsewhere in Afghanistan. It's a, it's a prime time yeah. to, to be a terrorist network. Uh, that sounds weird. That sounds like I'm promoting. Yeah, it sounds like a pitch for a bad Hollywood movie. Yeah. Um, I'm not promoting terrorism. No. Uh, but so, so undoubtedly the, the pandemic is, is a factor. But you're absolutely right. The, the coalition has, has withdrawn largely. The there aren't nearly the forces that there used to be. There aren't nearly the participating countries that there used to be. And part of that is because lots of the mission is done. Uh, ISIS is defeated, sort of. Um, certainly the territorial state is. But it's also because all of the, most of the coalition forces got pulled out of Baghdad and got pulled out of uh, other bases around Iraq when tensions were heightening with Iran. Uh, and we, we contributed to that. Um, so I think that, I think it's a combination. I think there's less fear of retribution, both because there's less, there's less oversight right now. Uh, and I mean, Iraq is in the middle of, it's for the moment, normal chaos. Uh, the, the protests have wound down, I believe, right? Ahmed? Still, no, still they are back. Nobody's going to notice. It's just going to blend into the chaos, right? Well, we'll see what's going to happen. <clears throat> now the government has like three days now since they are formed. So we are waiting and we'll see what's going to happen. Well, hopefully they don't blow anything else up. Goodness. Um, Sid wants to know how, how do the women in the camp, or the women there cope with the stress of life or death situations, just that constant being such a constant and worrying about their kids and the fear. So there's, there's 
fascinating psychological studies done on uh, the the effects of moderate low to moderate stress at all times um and essentially parts of your brain turn off uh, which you go into a sort of persistent fight or flight and that's what the women in the camps have done uh, they they protect themselves they protect their children um as much as possible and if they die they die um you have to understand that that their lives look so in, incredibly different than ours um these kids don't have matching shoes like they have completely different shoes on at all times because they wear whatever they can get and muhammad has a wheelchair that is six sizes too big that he can't push himself and it's held together with duct tape that the other kids play with because that's the way that life goes there. Um, and so I think, I think that's how they cope is that they put aside all of the mundane things that would drive me crazy um, and focus on getting to the next day. And I think the only way they can do that is by having some hope for whatever is next in the future. Uh, and that's what, wh whether they're Islamic State or whether they're Muhammad's mom, that's what remains remarkable to me, that they can still, the Islamic State women still believe that there's going to be this Islamic State and they're able to set aside the immediate dangers to dream about the future. That's almost inspiring. <laughs> Yeah. Um, wow. It's, it just, I mean, I think it, it, the context is everything and we can't, we can't not realize the great privilege we have here and that we don't, we aren't facing, you know, I might lose my, not just my house today, but my family and my clothes and everything. And, you know, yeah. puts it in a little bit of a perspective, all that we're having to deal with right now. Um, okay, we'll wrap up here. Sid asks, how do they feel about the United States? And do you think we were right or wrong to go to war with Iraq? So the first half is like my favorite question. Um, people consistently ask me, um, how, how do you travel in the Middle East? So my least favorite question is, as a woman, how do you think you're going to be received over there? which is a BS question, let me tell you now. Because as a woman, I have so much more access in the Middle East than any man does because really? I can talk to the men and I can talk to the women. So everybody who thinks that can go ahead and go sit in a closet somewhere. Now, how, how do they feel about Americans? Everywhere I've traveled in the world, people have always encouraged me, say you're Canadian, say you're Canadian, which is funny because I live half the time in Canada now. But I don't. I say I'm American and I do so intentionally because I think it's important to present an idea of Americans around the world that isn't what people expect. Um, and everywhere I have been in the Middle East, every single place, but especially in Iraq, I have been greeted with open arms. Mm. So people might not like American policy and people might not like whatever the American president is of the day. But I have only ever met people who appreciated my respect for them and respect for their culture uh, and, and reciprocated it in kind. Um, 
do I think America should have gone to war with Iraq? I think the 2003 invasion was complicated at best. Um, I think there were divergent aims, and I think there's lots of movies and documentaries that have gone into those pretty thoroughly. Um, so I, I can't speak. We've got 2020 hindsight on that one. Um, I 100% think it was a moral decision to go in as a coalition and as American forces, an American-led coalition um, in the fight against ISIS. And I think that's part of what drew me to write the book is because I got back from working in Iraq uh, and working with American forces. And, and I got back to an American society and I talked to people and they had no idea what we were doing over there. They had no idea what the fight against ISIS was about. And I, it was frustrating to me because this time we got it right. We got, we got it all right. Like we went in when asked, we went in with the resources asked for. We went in to provide training and provide economic support and provide all of these different things. And we did it collectively. And we did it to, to fend off this cancerous growth of society that was cutting people's heads off and making women stay inside and like killing people for having a cell phone. So, so this time, this, this entrance into Iraq, I think was, was not just right, it was morally justified. Oh, okay. Um, in the sense of telling all the stories and that like, that you are telling stories from various people who on different sides of all, all the different sides of this, um, NH asks, given the brutality of some of the transgressions of the ISIS leaders and fighters, do you think the people who had to carry out heinous acts are ever able to come back to any semblance of normal and reintegrate into society, be it Syria, Iraq, or internationally? I think it depends. I think it depends on the level of brutality. I think that one of the common punishments in Mosul was to have your head cut off um, and then to have your body left in the road for cars to run over it until there was nothing left but clothing. And not only that, but it was required of the community to watch these things happen. To I stood in the traffic circle where they would put the heads on the spikes, which is haunting to this day. Now, do I think the people who perpetrated it uh, will ever come back from that? That's between them and their maker. Um, I don't. I don't know if you can come back from that that level of psychosis. Uh, though we've seen we've seen valiant efforts uh, at at war crime tribunals around the world that really do bring. Um, bring people to back to themselves and bring people to uh, feel sorry for, for their transgressions. Uh, the most hardened ISIS criminals, no, I don't think they should be reintegrated in the society. Do I have a plan for what to do with them? No, I do not. Um, the average ISIS fighter, yeah, let them go home. Like, let them go home. And they are, to be perfectly honest, they're they are doing kind of 
like small scale reintegrations into into Iraqi and Syrian society, um, and then monitoring it pretty closely. Uh, but a lot of it also has to do with how they're treated in prison. Um, if if they are if they are subjugated to terrible conditions, um, then the the craziest, most extreme ISIS fighter is just going to be crazier and more extreme, and they're going to be pissed off. And now they've got even more friends to help uh, direct the attacks at whom they're pissed off at. Yeah. Um, Mitch asks, did the Saudi government view the existence of ISIS as beneficial, even if they couldn't publicly feel that way? Certainly didn't hurt. <laughs> um, so this is where proxy wars are fascinating um, and where uh, the whole conflict has made for interesting bedfellows. Did Saudi see ISIS as beneficial? Yeah, to a certain extent, they they were they were expanding Salafi uh, ideology in different parts of the Gulf, uh, and while Saudi runs off of a different Salafi jihadist uh, philosophy, it's not bad. Now, who really benefited from ISIS was the Assad regime. <laughs> Uh, the Assad regime was more than happy to have ISIS roaming around the eastern and northern uh, Syrian countryside because they were picking off the people who were fighting the Saudis. Um, and to a large extent, the Turks didn't mind ISIS's presence. They certainly didn't shut down their borders to the illegal oil that was being traded uh, by ISIS into parts of Turkey. Uh, so there are, there are conspiracy theories abound. Um, throughout mm. the Middle East. It's like their favorite pastime. Um, and everybody you talk to has a different theory about who actually funded ISIS and who like who was funneling them resources. And the only kind of anecdotal evidence that I ever saw that Saudi um, and Qatar both were, were helping ISIS was that many of the vehicles that were brought in that ISIS that ISIS drove around in uh, had Saudi plates. Ah. So uh, they certainly didn't hide it uh, if, if that was the case. And I think that tacitly they benefited at least in the beginning, less so um, when Saudi started or when ISIS started threatening Saudi itself. Mm. Wow. Um, so much to untangle. Yeah. I'm so glad that you're here, that you've got perspective on this and that you're trying to sort some of it out for us. Um, and I hope someday I get to see Baghdad for myself. You know, I was, I was, it's, it's probably my favorite city. I want to go with you. I want to see your Baghdad. That would be so amazing. Ahmed will, uh, Ahmed's got a big house. He can, he can take us both. Well, I hope so I hope you, I hope that's okay, Ahmed. We're uh, going to be crashing at your place now, so whether you like it or not, apparently, no problem. <laughs> that's amazing. Well, Molly, I just want to thank you so much for sharing your heart with us, sharing all of your experiences with us. This is just it's it's really been amazing, and I I appreciate the the nuance and the shading that has to be brought to this, so we can understand better. And you know, I really appreciate the mission, I guess, for the lack of a better word of your book of sharing the stories and sharing, you know, humanizing the face of who these people are. And so that we don't just keep going, oh, well, they're just the bad guy in the movie. Yeah. <laughs> like, for the love of God. Um, so 
Thank you so much for that. Um, and thank you so much for this platform and for, and for encouraging us to not just Netflix binge our way through uh, quarantine. Yes. It's been yes. a lot of fun. Thanks, everybody. Next time on Hearthside Salons. How do we get through this when we're all so angry and so sure we're right? What's coming next? The ability to create understanding between people is crucial for relationships. It's especially important in today's heightened environment of polarization. That's why we're talking to applied behavioral science expert Heidi Harris for The Emotionality of Polarization. Join us. Special thanks to our graphic and sonic designer, Joel Harris. Our theme music is by Lachey Swing. For more on our script coaching, online concept to pages writing courses, and writing retreats in Italy, again someday, check out pagecraftwriting.com, at pagecraftwriting on Instagram, and at pagecraftwrite on Twitter. I'm Heidi from Pagecraft. Thanks for listening and stay well.